Okay. Welcome, everybody. Uh, this is the first of five sessions of a uh, mini-series at Web Yeshiva called Religion in Pop Culture. Uh, and each, for those of you who were in the previous mini-series, uh, seven sessions called Best of Both Worlds, this is a little bit different, uh, meaning in that series, each week was a specific hero or icon different perspectives on them, compare and contrast with Torah. Here, um, each, uh, each week we, we discuss at least three different uh, books, movies, songs, whatever, in pop culture and compare and contrast within that, that present a particular uh, subject, which is itself a Torah subject. And thinking about compare and contrast, how they present it, and uh, and how our our sources in light of of our sources. So um, the uh, it's there's a lot to say about uh, tshuva, uh, repentance, return to Hashem in in pop culture. We're going to focus on on three three different aspects, three which are really two. Uh, namely, the topic of Darth Vader is one particular type of tshuva, and then uh, the type of tshuva as seen in A Christmas Carol and Groundhog Day, those are, uh, even though each story stands on its own, but they have a lot in common with each other. So, so that, that will be really in, uh, afterwards, really in a separate, separate category. Um, the, let me start by, uh, by sharing, uh, a few, uh, a few images that are relevant to the first part of, uh, uh, of this class. Uh, here we see nine movie posters uh, from of the, the main Star Wars, oops, uh, the main Star Wars uh, images, the main Star Wars movies, there are a lot of Star Wars movies now, depending on how you count and, and uh, animated, etc. But um, in order of episodes uh, one through nine, or to put it in other terms, the, the original trilogy, that's in the middle here, uh, the one, the movie that a long, a long time ago, in a galaxy far, far away, was described as just plain old Star Wars. But now it's called Star Wars: A New Hope, also known as Star Wars Episode Four, which was followed, which made it a very, very big splash at the time. I even remember that. Uh, probably one of my earliest memories: the excitement about uh, about this new movie called Star Wars, which was followed by The Empire Strikes Back, followed by Return of the Jedi, and many people thought that was the entire story. Silly them. George Lucas had in mind the uh, guy who came up with the whole concept uh, had in mind all along that this was really only the middle of the story, uh, episodes four, five, and six. So he ended up making uh, movies, which don't want to get into it right now, but uh, many people, uh, especially people who are not already huge Star Wars fans, think that, that they are much, much worse than the original uh, trilogy. Episodes one, two, and three, and then followed by in the just in the last with a big big gap in in years uh, between the um, each uh, trilogy that the last three uh, so far anyway uh, the, the Force Awakens the, the Last Jedi um, and uh, and that Skywalker one um, the just to put things in perspective uh, those of us who are not big Star Wars fans when we think of Star Wars we think of the original uh, trilogy, and uh, we're going to focus on on Return of the Jedi uh, in a, in a couple of minutes. But just to uh, put things in perspective, uh, at the time it was perceived as that's the end of the story. Um, the uh, I know there's, there's so much we we can say about it, but uh, at the end of Star Wars, Star Wars uh, seems to end with the good guys win. Uh, well, they, they do win, sort of. Uh, Empire Strikes Back, the good guy, Luke Skywalker, discovers that the, the bad guy, uh, Darth Vader, turns out it's his father. Um, that was a big shock that most people did not see coming. And, but then at the end of Return of the Jedi, there is a kind of, not just vanquishing of the bad guy, but the uh, bad guy does tshuva, which is very, very, very unusual in... Um, in the speculative fiction, sci-fi, fantasy kind of 
uh, well, fiction in general, in which there is somebody who is the bad guy, not because he was really misunderstood, but, but someone who is uh, a dictator, someone who is uh, genocidal. Uh, one of the, I was reading, um, I think it was in this, um, this was a uh, cover story, um, oops, cover story in Rolling Stone magazine uh, back in uh, 2005, uh, The Cult of Darth Vader. Uh, and they spoke with a bunch of people who were involved in uh, different aspects of, uh, of, of creating this, uh, this villain, who is generally considered, if not number one, then one of the top movie villains of all time. This particular uh, page called The Many Faces of uh, Vader, they spoke with um, uh, Hayden Christensen, who played the young Darth Vader, uh, Jake Lloyd, who played... The, uh, uh, the kid in episode one, um, ja uh, James Earl Jones, who provided the voice, um, and then David Prowse, uh, actually died la last month, who w was the body of uh, Darth Vader. He was a bodybuilder, uh, big. He was, uh, uh, at least at the time of the first movie, um, he was, uh, I think he was six, six foot seven. Yes, he was six foot seven, 280 pounds. And he only discovered after the movie was filmed that they weren't planning to use his voice. They uh, they dubbed in the voice of James Earl Jones, which was much much deeper, uh, and it, it went along with the 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 evil uh, uh, image of it. But the, re the reason I mentioned this article is that where was it? Um, it's because we're so used to the story by now. Uh, remember how. Darth Vader first appears. He appears uh, in in uh, the original Star Wars movie um, after a battle in which the uh, the rebels are uh, are are killed, and uh, he shows up and um, he doesn't have a face. A lot of people, it, a lot of uh, people watching the movie, at first thought he was a robot. Uh, very tall, ominous. He has. This, uh, mechanical breathing, like, like he's in an iron lung, uh, which makes him sound scarier. He then proceeds to choke uh, people who work for him. Uh, so you could tell he's pretty evil. But in case you haven't figured out yet how bad he is, he then proceeds to authorize the destruction of a planet with two billion people. So that's, that's like among the first things we know about him. Uh, he's up there or down there, as the case may be, with among the most the most evil, scary, uh, intimidating um, uh, people, uh, villains of, uh, of, uh, of movie history, uh, if not of uh, speculative fiction in general. We'll come back to this, uh, this book that, from uh, Rabbi, Rabbi Salvechik. It's very, very, very unusual for a villain to do tshuva, possibly in fiction, possibly because in, in real life, you don't hear about that sort of thing. You don't, you don't hear about Nazis changing their mind and, uh, and, and, and apologizing. Um, and yet, and yet, uh, and that's why, even though the, you could argue to what, that the end of Return of the Jedi, where uh, Darth Vader uh, does tshuva, uh, we'll see part of that shortly, uh, that was a big shock. You could argue it's not as big a shock as at the end of Empire Strikes Back. He's saying, Luke, I am your father. Um, but I thought it was interesting that we're all going to see a, a couple of quotes about this, and then we'll, then we'll move on because we do have a bunch of things to, uh, to cover in the session. But in this interview in the Rolling Stone uh, issue that I held up, interview with George Lucas in, uh, in 2005, that the uh, interviewer said uh, he found it interesting how the new films – this, this was after uh, episodes one, two, and three. Uh, I found it interesting how the new films reframed the old ones, uh, Star Wars, Empire Strikes Back, Return of the Jedi. They now seem primarily concerned with the tragedy of Darth Vader rather than the triumph of the rebels. And George Lucas says, yeah, I made a series of movies that was about one thing, Darth Vader. Originally, people thought it was all about Luke, and the early films are about Luke redeeming his father, but it's also about Princess Leia, etc., etc., um, the first three episodes, meaning episodes one, two, and three, are a tragedy, and the second three go slightly goofy, meaning there's more of a sense of humor in them, but, Lucas says, they're inspirational. 
Even the worst, most evil people find compassion. Darth Vader has compassion for his children, and that's ultimately what children are for. I don't know if everybody would agree with that last part, but that this is, and you could, of course, like anything else with Star Wars, you could disagree with George Lucas. Uh, uh, some fans certainly do disagree with him on some aspects uh, of it. Uh, but that's, that's what he thinks is the message of uh, the films, or at least of the um, of the trilogy that ends with the Return of the Jedi, uh, I'm not. We're not going. We don't have time to see to watch the the entire section. But that uh, the Emperor, who is uh, has has only made brief appearances in the uh, uh, in the first trilogy, he is uh, in the process of killing uh, Luke Skywalker, and Darth Vader shows up, and instead of supporting his boss, the Emperor. Instead, he uh, rescues Luke and kills, uh, or we think he kills, the, uh, the Emperor. And uh, who then, in the course of dying, uh, uh, hurts... Well, in any case, Darth Vader is about, is, he's about to die, but this is his, his redeeming moment that he gets rid of the, uh, of the Emperor. And I thought it was so interesting that it helps... To reflect deeply on something like this, it helps to have a detailed knowledge of both the pop culture and of the Torah sources, which in this case would not be me, but it would be somebody who went to Yeshiva University with me, Rabbi Tzvi Patinsky, who teaches uh, at, at Frisch. So he wrote this article just, uh, just uh, three years ago, on uh, the day after Star Wars Day, that's uh, May the 4th. Get it? May the 4th be with you. Um, so he... Uh, he in, basically summarizes uh, the, the story of, um, of Darth Vader. He says, spoiler alert, if you've been living in a hole since 1980, um, after Anakin d- descended into evil, he changed his name to Darth Vader, etc., etc. I uh, needed, because horribly injured, so I need a life support system. What makes Star Wars special, this is Rabbi Patinsky now, is its insight into the basic human condition. We all wear masks. Darth Vader, of course, with most... Uh, famous for his, his mask. Um, we, we hide our Tselem Elohim, our true selves, behind an artificial exterior. And Rav Deswar and Mirtav Meliyahu, who strive for truth, uh, describes this as uh, an iron wall that separates our holy spark from, uh, meaning the, the, the Pintalia, the who we are deep inside, from our ego, which he describes as our out, outer selves. So to illustrate this, how is Darth Vader illustrate this? We'll see right now. And that is, before we get to Darth Vader, there's a Gemara that uh, actually has a very strong parallel to the end of, of Darth Vader, and that is the Gemara. He quotes it right here in, in Chagiga Adaf Tetvav. I decided not to bring the Gemara because he has a, a good Rabbi Patinsky has a good summary of, uh, of it here. Elisha Ben Avuya was one of the Tanayim, one of the rabbis uh, of, the, uh, of the Mishnah, and he uh, became a heretic. Uh, after which, there are all these stories of his interaction, continued interaction with Rabbi Meir, his student, who, unlike all the other rabbis, refuses to um, uh, give up on him. And there's a story, you've probably heard the story before, Elisha um, uh, Benavuya shows up riding a horse on Shabbat, uh, which is forbidden, and he walks with Rabbi Meir, and when they, uh, when they reach the, the Tchum, the outside the city limits, uh, Acher, that's what he called himself, he called himself the other. Acher tells Rabbi Meir, oh, you have to go back, because we're approaching Tchum Shabbat, and you, you still keep halacha. So, uh, we're actually skipping a key part of the Gemara, which Rabbi Meir, I think it's the impressive part, is Rabbi Meir is like, how could you know that? Like, they didn't have signs back then. This is the Tchum Shabbat, they have that in, uh, in Israel now. And Elisha ben says, oh, well, while we were talking, I was counting the, uh, the hoofbeats. Of uh, the horse, that that's how I knew this. So he says to Rabbi Meir, "You need to go back. You need to return." And Rabbi Meir says, "Oh yeah, you return. Why don't you do tshuva?" And Acher says, "No, I can't do tshuva because I once was. We're summarizing here, but I was passing the Beit Hamikdash on Yom Kippur, and I heard a heavenly voice say, "Everybody do tshuva." Except for Acher. Everybody can do tshuva except for, uh, for Acher. So you see, Elisha Benavuya says, there's no, there's no hope for me. I heard it from heaven. 
And that's basically the end of the, of the Gemara, the end of the key part of the Gemara. But Rabbi Salvechik, in his, uh, in one of his tshuva drashot, where he, just, he had a lot of fascinating ideas about tshuva, he comments on this Gemara and he says that we should have misinterpreted the bod called the heavenly voice. It can't be, cannot be, based on everything else we know about tshuva, that there's such a thing as someone who can't do tshuva. Simple understanding of the Gemara is that, yes, that's exactly what it means. Rabbi Salvechik says, no. What the voice is saying is that Acher can't repent. As long as he views himself as the other, then he won't be able. Not, not, not that God won't allow him. It won't work. But who he really is, his real name, his real name is Elisha, who he was before, he can always repent. That, that's, that's Rabbi Salvechik. So Rabbi Patinsky adds that the message is one that becomes more apparent while watching the saga of Darth Vader. Luke Skywalker, uh, through Return of the Jedi, believed that his father still had uh, good in him. Okay, and then let's uh, let's look at a brief uh, brief uh, uh, video now. Just a minute. Not this one. Wait a minute. Uh, where? Sorry, just experiencing technical difficulties. Not this video. This one. Okay. Can you see Obi Wan on the screen? Okay. Uh, here we go. Why didn't you tell me? You told me Vader betrayed and murdered my father. Your father was seduced by the dark side of the force. He ceased to be Anakin Skywalker and became Darth Vader. Uh. When that happened, the good man who was your father was destroyed. So what I told you was true from a certain point of view. A certain point of view? Luke, you're going to find that many of the truths we cling to depend greatly on our own point of view. Anakin was a good friend of mine. When I first knew him, your father was already a great pilot, but I was amazed how strongly the Force was with him. I took it upon myself to train him as a Jedi. I thought that I could instruct him just as well as Yoda. I was wrong. There is still good in him. He's more machine now than man. Twisted and evil. Okay, that's an, that should be evil at the end there. He's more machine than man. Okay? And the way that Obi-Wan presented it before uh, was that uh, when he changed, when he changed his identity from, uh, from Anakin to, to Darth Vader, that was a slide into evil, and by now, by now he's more, more machine than man. Um, and and as far as Obi-Wan is concerned, you know, he's he's unredeemable and that's the simple understanding of it. What ends up happening, I already told you in the um the the battle in which uh, Darth Vader basically allows steps in and uh and saves saves uh uh Luke uh and this is what happens afterwards. A little loud here. But you'll die. Nothing can stop that now. Just for once, let me look on you with my own eyes. Sad music. under there.
I'll not leave you here. I've got to save you. You are ready. You are right. Wow, dramatic, dramatic scene there. I've got to save you. And Darth Vader, you see from his real face, he says, you already have. Uh, you were right. Now that, that's so unexpected that Rabbi Patinsky points out, so just combining these two clips together, both from the same movie, as long as Anakin is no longer human, as long as he's Darth Vader, just like as long as Acher, as long as uh, Elisha Benavuya sees himself as Acher, he can't do tshuva. So when, uh, when Darth Vader says he wants to take off the helmet, see his son with, with his own eyes, he's saying, I don't want to be Darth Vader anymore. So I thought that was an interesting compare and contrast between the, uh, the story of Alicia Benavuya and the story of, of Darth Vader, according to Rabbi Patinsky. By the way, whether Alicia Benavuya did tshuva or not is kind of debated in the Gemara. Sounds like he didn't do tshuva, but then lightning strikes his grave, and, and uh, uh, Rabbi Meir says, oh, this must be a sign that there's some atonement for him. Anyway, here's the controversial part. Rabbi Salvechik, while not addressing Darth Vader per se, or even Elisha Benavuya, says in his book on Tisha B'Av, the one whose cover I showed you before, he points out that one of the last keynote that we say on Tisha B'Av is the story of Zechariah. Zechariah, the prophet who was murdered by the people, and Nebuzaradan, the enemy general who's slaughtered thousands and thousands of Jews. Uh, I'm skipping the whole story, but when he, uh, he gets inspired by the fact that God is making this miracle of the blood bubbling of the, of the dead prophet, and it's not spelled out in the Kina, but in the uh, Gemara, or the Midrash, uh, it says, and then Nebuzaradan went and did tshuva. Someone who is our enemy, someone who, who slaughtered thousands of Jews, he did tshuva. So Rabbi Salvechik says, Chazal wanted to leave us, meaning at the, near the end of keynote, with this idea, the power of tshuva, to not give up hope about people who seem completely reprehensible. The gates of tshuva should be closed to a mass murderer like Nebuzaradan, but this is not the case. If then even his tshuva is accepted, even for Amalek. And Rabbi Salvechik then gave another example of Menashe, according to the Rishalmi, which we're going to skip here, but briefly, Menashe was one of the evil kings. Simple understanding is that, so he, you know, he was one of the worst, you know, and there's a lot of competition for a worst king, worst uh, of the Jewish kings in, uh, in Tanakh, in Sefer Malachim. Chazal, uh, say that he only returned to God because he was tortured. But he did return. The angels did, did tshuva. Uh, the, Menashe, Menashe did tshuva. The angels did not want to accept his tshuva. And Hashem, according to the Yerushalmi, opened up a place for Menashe, opened up a place for his, his prayers to, to come through. So Rabbi Salvechik, talking about Nebuzaradan and Menashe, uh, comments, even a person who logically, logically should never be granted the opportunity to repent, has the privilege to do tshuva. Logically, we should have rejected his tshuva, not only for two different reasons. One, super evil, how many people do you have to kill before you're unredeemable? And number two, he only did tshuva because he was being tortured, not out of the goodness of his heart. But, HaKadosh Baruch Hu sometimes acts in a manner contrary to our human logic. We do not understand it. Very interesting that Rabbi Salvechik does not try to justify it uh, logically. He says this is beyond logic. Logically, it does not make any sense to us, but that's how extreme tshuva is. Tshuva can, if, now you could argue, well, practically speaking, the most evil people don't actually do tshuva. But if that could happen under those circumstances, under those circumstances, then that, that would be true tshuva. What does it mean that his tshuva is accepted? That, that's not between, that's a good question. It's not between us and that person. It's really between that person and Hashem and, uh, and the afterlife. But I thought it was so interesting that this 
Alicia Benavoya, Darth Vader, fits in. Uh, even though Rabbi Patinsky wasn't focusing on that so much, he was focusing on, on the identity issue, which ties in very much to that class we did about masks and who you are uh, really. But this aspect that Rabbi Salvechik is mentioning, uh, that even the worst, if they do tshuva, their tshuva is accepted. And the next few sources, which we're, I'm just going to summarize, uh, but uh, it's worth going through and get a chance. The source sheet is available on the, on the course page. Uh, sources 4, 5, and 6, two articles um, arguing that that message, that even the worst ever people, that message is why we read Sefer Yonah as Aftorah for Mincha and Yom Kippur. I'm not going to go through So two articles, one called uh, Why Jonah is Read on Yom Kippur, uh, and sources four and six, and the other article called Jonah, a parable for our time. I'm going to skip the details, especially since there might be some people here who uh, would do not want to read sickening descriptions of what Assyria did. I'm just going to do the, the, that's in source number four. Um, just, I'll do the brief version, source number five. The Assyrians, the Ashur, right? Mamlechet Ashur, Ashur, the Assyrian Empire, whose capital was Nineveh. The Assyrians were the Nazi stormtroopers of the ancient world. They were a pitiless, power-crazed foe. No quarter in battle, uprooting entire peoples in their fury for conquest. They extinguished our northern kingdom of Israel, as in Shomron, Yehuda and Shomron, Samaria. What happened? They left us only with the memory of the lost ten tribes. What happened to the lost ten tribes? We know what happened to them the Assyrians exiled them and brought other people to populate Shomron instead. Those people ended up being called the Shomronim, and they ended up causing a lot of trouble for the Jews because they weren't really Jewish. They were just people who lived there and decided that they were Jewish. There's still a couple hundred of them still alive today. So therefore, for Nineveh, for, for Yonah, Nineveh was no ordinary city. It carried doom-laden, tragic memories. It was a symbol of evil incarnate. Imagine then the reaction of Yonah to the God's call. Go to Ninveh and tell them to do tshuva. It's as much as asking him to call on Satan to repent. Or, I guess, since we're comparing them to the Nazis. Imagine, uh, not that we have uh, Nevuah prophecy today, but if we did, imagine a Navi is uh, told by, by God in the late 1930s, uh, Hitler is going to make a holocaust, but I... I, I He's going to be killed by, uh, by heaven if he doesn't do tshuva right now. I need you to go to Berlin and help Hitler do tshuva even in a temporary way so that he can uh, carry out the Holocaust. This is what I'm saying now is more or less an adaptation of uh, some of the commentaries on, say, for Yonah, about why Yonah did not want, Barbanel especially, why Yonah did not want to uh, go to Ninveh. So Rabbi Dr. Charles uh, Isbell, uh, in source, source number six, same, same one that, that I skipped in source no, number four, he's a professor at Louisiana uh, State University. Um, he comments on this that uh, the sad reality is that Jews in subsequent generations would never know whether the theoretical yes of God, even the evil and invade people could do tshuva, whether that could become actual. Unlike the Ninveh characters in Sefer Yonah, none of our succeeding enemies would ever choose to forsake evil and murderous deeds and pursue repentance as an option. At least not in the shot of history as we know it, of our many, many enemies. None of them ever turned around and said, oh, you Jews were right, I, I want to uh, repent, I want to become Jewish. Um, nevertheless, nonetheless, it's the mere possibility of super evil people, our enemies, doing tshuva, that must remain as a supreme lesson to be derived from the book of Yonah in every generation. So, and this can transform Yom Kippur from a day of formalized guilt. You know, we, we beat our chests and we, we read what it says in the Machzar from transforming it from that to a time of hope and optimism. For if even the worst monster out there can be changed, surely the worst among us may be forgiven. And who's the worst monster? In Sefer Yonah, it's the people of Ninveh. And for Chazal, was also... Menashe, and it was also Nebuzaradan, and in a different way, also Elisha Benavuya. So in pop culture, also Darth Vader. The very possibility, even if you view it as Vidrash, even if you view it as fiction, and I would have written the story differently, etc., but the very possibility of the most evil person doing tshuva is, gives tremendous hope to the rest of us, because 
maybe I'm bad. Maybe I've done terrible things, but I'm not that bad. I never committed genocide. I think most of us can say that with great confidence. Uh, I'm not in that category. If even, if even fill in the blank, Menashe, uh, uh, Assyria, uh, Darth Vader, if even they could do tshuva, then there's hope for me. I thought that was just such, such an interesting perspective. And after I read these, these articles about, uh, about Ashur, like I always, uh, for me at least, the uh, Safer Yonah is, is, uh, is different, is in a different category from what it was before. That's the end of the first part of, uh, of this uh, uh, session. Uh, and I'd like to uh, talk about somebody else who did tshuva in fiction, but a different kind of tshuva. Let's talk about Ebenezer Scrooge, the most famous jerk to nice guy. I'll explain shortly what I mean by jerk to nice guy, but uh, a, a sermon, a rabbi sermon uh, from uh, 2009, Rabbi Ed Feinstein from the Valley Beth Shalom uh, Conservative Synagogue in uh, Encino, California. That's a shul that used to be associated with uh, Rabbi Harold Schulweis. So he gave a sermon about Sefer Yona, but he introduced it this way. Most of all, talking about uh, what he likes about Christmas. Uh, most of all, he says, I cherish Charles Dickens's A Christmas Carol. Dickens understood tshuva. He believed in the power of truth to open a heart, to turn a soul, to bring a man home again. On one faithful Christmas Eve in this uh, novella, uh, Ebenezer Scrooge is transformed from miser into mensch. And then Rabbi Feinstein goes on to say, there's a story in our tradition that rivals Dickens. The rabbis require that Sefer Yonah be read on, on Yom Kippur. Let's call it a Yom Kippur carol story in, uh, in three acts. And then he goes on to talk about, uh, about Sefer Yonah. Uh, I thought that was an interesting, since we were just talking about Sefer Yonah, and the possibility of anybody to do tshuva in, in, uh, way before, uh, way before uh, George Lucas came up with Darth Vader, uh, Charles Dickens came up with the character of Ebenezer Scrooge in A Christmas Carol, which I don't know about you, but I first read it for the first time last year. And it sounded really familiar uh, because, as we'll see, it's been adapted so many times. It's totally worth reading. You could get it easily uh, from Project Gutenberg. It's 75 pages, at least in the edition that I read. It's not even a novel. It's a novella. Okay. Few, I'm reading out from the TV Tropes website, Source 8. Few people have read it, but everyone knows the story. Possibly the most widely adapted story of all time. Um, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, countless television shows did at least one episode thrusting one of their main characters into their own Christmas Carol-like scenario. Um, and to, to illustrate this point, I want to uh, share with you a few images that relate to um, to a Christmas Carol. Uh, we have here the uh, the title page of uh, the original edition, uh, uh, 18, 1843. There are dozens and dozens of movie adaptations. Forget about TV episodes, but uh, just today and yesterday, I went through a uh, a series online on the website called uh, Jim Hill Media uh, that had uh, that deals with pop culture, especially Disney. It had a series of blog posts, each about a different movie adaptation of A Christmas Carol. Forty, there were four, only forty, because forty, you know, only scratches the surface. But I just wanted to share with you the the uh, movie posters of some that he thought were the most. Uh, that Jim Hill thought were the most uh, noteworthy. Uh, Alastair Sim in the 1951 black and white version uh, uh, where he does, uh, he's apparently considered the best Scrooge, but acting not in the standard over-the-top version, bah humbug, and uh, hamming it up, but like acting as a real person who has, uh, whose bad midot have gotten, gotten the best of him. Uh, a variation on this is the uh, 1984 um, TV movie with, with uh, George C. Scott, where he's like way more confident than the usual uh, version. Oops, not that. Uh, Patrick Stewart in, uh, in 1999 uh, did, did another TV movie, uh, which he's more, um, he's more also like, like a, a real person, uh, not, not, not overacting. A uh, bunch of musical editions. Uh, one of them, which Jim Hill liked a lot, is Mr. Magoo's Christmas Carol 
from uh, from 1962. Uh, then there's the Christmas Carol, the musical, uh, music by Alan Menken, uh, with a bunch of, of actors, as you see here. Uh, Kelsey Grammer plays uh, Scrooge, uh, and you may or may not recognize uh, the one who plays Jacob Marley is Jason Alexander, uh, who you might remember from uh, from Seinfeld. Uh, there are even editions, there are even versions which they change a bunch of things, but still follow the story. Uh, Ebby's story in Ebby's story, the main ca uh, character uh, is not Ebenezer, but Ebby. That that's her name, uh, played by Susan Lucci. You might remember from uh, from Dynasty. Uh, the backstory in this one is that she only became so tough because she needed to be tough in order to make it as a uh, as a woman in uh, in business. Uh, and then in the Ms. Scrooge edition from 1997, starring uh, Cicely uh, Tyson, she her backstory is she only got tough because as a black woman in business, she really had to uh, to go out of her way. Anyway, there are so many adaptations. Uh, the one that you might remember, this is a, a one of the modern versions starring uh, Bill Murray uh, as uh, Frank Cross, a contemporary, very, very cynical TV executive in the movie uh, Scrooge. Um, now that's from uh, uh, that's from 1988. And the reason I'm ending with this is because this will lead us into the movie that Bill Murray starred in just five years later, namely, namely Groundhog Day. The, um, one second, yeah, let's go back to the, uh, to the source sheet. Two days ago, an article appeared in the Times of Israel called, Teach a Christmas Carol in Yeshiva, Really? By a guy named Mark Levinson, who apparently is a, uh, a journalist and screenwriter who's working on a novel of Jewish fantasy. Anyway, I like the way, I like what he said about uh, A Christmas Carol, and I liked it so much that I redid the source sheet in order to incorporate it. We're not going to read the whole thing, but basically he says, the guy who literally wrote the book on Tshuva was the Rambam, okay, Hilcho Tshuva in the Mishnah Torah. The story of A Christmas Carol hues so closely to the Rambam's teachings on tshuva, it could be used as a case study of the concept. Not going to go through the details now, but just the, uh, the bullet points. Remorse, having true shame over, over what you did wrong. Rambam, a Christmas carol. Vowing to change your behavior. Oh, so the first one is, is Harata al-Ha'avar, uh, Kabbalah uh, al-Ha'atid. Um, acting to change your behavior. It's not enough to just stop doing something wrong. You have to do something positive. Seeking forgiveness. Uh, making amends, asking for mechila. All of these are classic texts from Perak Bet of Hilcho Tshuva, and they all have parallels in the last or next to last sections of uh, of A Christmas Carol. So, uh, uh, and he concludes that in the last couple of pages of A Christmas Carol, um, here, oh, one second, right before that, uh, uh, Levinson comments, the unfunny joke about New Year's resolutions is that they fade be before the month is out. But Scrooge's resolutions do not. He promises to change and he delivers that change. How do you know? After all, like we, we said, oh, Darth Vader, he does one thing that redeems himself, but then he dies. He doesn't have to live in a world in which... He has to justify himself, and how can he live after this? No, this is, these are the words of Dickens. Scrooge was better than his word. He did it all, and infinitely more. And to Tiny Tim, who did not die, he was a second father. He became as good a friend, as good a master, as good a man, as a good old city knew, or any other good, good city, etc., etc. Uh, and the last line of, uh, of A Christmas Carol, and so as Tiny Tim observed, God bless us, everyone. Me, and he says it's right at, that's a line from earlier, but in the, in the book, but may that truly be said of us and all of us, that what? Not just that we know how to keep Christmas well, oh yes, P.S., this happens to be a Christmas story, but there's no Jesus in it, there's no Christianity in it, unless by Christianity you mean being a good person, that's how, you know, of all the Christmas stories, this is one of the ones that Jews can get behind, people of all religions can get behind, because Dickens, uh, Put only in the background the the, the Christian uh, aspect. Um, so the God bless us, everyone. That what that we should that we should be like that. What 
not just vowing to do tshuva, but uh, but actually do tshuva. And this leads us to uh, this is going to be our transition between a Christmas Carol and, uh, and Groundhog Day. Uh, that TV tropes, which I, I've mentioned, uh, I mentioned in the previous series, uh, a great, great source of information cataloging all different ideas in pop culture and um, uh, describing a theme and then giving examples of that theme from literature and movies, uh, live action and, and, and animated and television and, and comic books and huge amounts. So they have a page called Jerk to Nice Guy Plot. And this is their summary. Every time there's a capital uh, in this, it means that if you were on the actual website, you could click on it, and that will open up a page to a separate trope just about that. Okay, here's a jerk to nice guy plot. This should sound familiar and not just from A Christmas Carol. Our usually male protagonist is first introduced as a self-centered jerk ass who doesn't care about the feelings of others. You should expect a series of scenes uh, of him being rude to subordinates, ditching his nerdy friend, or kicking a woman out of his house in the morning. He's usually rich, good-looking, successful, and or charming, but lacking in friendship and love. Then, our hero undergoes some trial and tribulations, eventually saving the day. In the process, he discovers how much of a jerk he's been, learning a lesson in humility and kindness. Yay! He will also found, find love and or true friendship in the process. Skipping a bit... This is a form of redemption story where, unlike Darth Vader and the first uh, half or so of this session, in this story, the protagonist was never actually evil, just self-centered and unpleasant. A jerk to nice guy plot is more common in one-shots such as movies or single novels rather than series. And then they give example after example after example. I just copied a few of them. These are mostly movies that I've seen. Uh, but there are so many. Beauty and the Beast, Cars, the first movie, Despicable Me, these are in the animated uh, section, Emperor's New Groove, Lego Batman, Megamind, every single one of these fits the plot just described above. Groundhog Day, okay, just in case there's anybody out there who hasn't seen Groundhog Day, here's a, a quick summary. Phil Connors is contemptuous toward almost everyone, makes no attempt to hide it. But Fate, which is not explained in the movie, Decides to put him in a Groundhog Day loop. Notice this is capitalized. That's the trope namer, meaning there are other examples in pop culture of somebody who lives the same day over and over again. But it, Groundhog Day is so famous that the name of the trope on the website is Groundhog Day loop, causing him to relive the same day over and over again. He decides to help other people avoid being hurt. He betters himself by learning to play the piano and create ice sculpture. He falls in love. When he's improved his personality enough, he is freed from the loop. There's a lot more to the movie than that, but that, that's okay for our one-paragraph summary. But how about in the Marvel Cinematic Universe? There's Thor, there's Doctor Strange, meaning the movie Thor, the movie Doctor Strange, and then Iron Man, not only in the first Iron Man movie, but over the entire Marvel Cinematic Universe, over the course of movie after movie, with a lot of up and, ups and downs, I left out the spoiler at the end of this paragraph, but Iron Man, uh, Tony Stark redeems himself and on a small scale in given movies, but then from the beginning of his arc to the end of, uh, of his arc. No, I'm not going to tell you. I'm not going to tell you any spoilers. Um, that he is in a perhaps the, the uh, current, in current pop culture, he's probably the mo most uh, prominent example of the jerk to nice guy. And then, of course, Scrooge, which, as we just said, is a, a film adaptation uh, based on uh, Christmas Carol, Trading Places. Oh, literature. Oh, there's a bunch of these. I, I only copied a couple of them. Two of the books of, uh, of the Nar Chronicles of Narnia include, uh, include this sort of thing. And then the same page says, oh, yeah, and then there's Scrooge. He may be the trope codifier, meaning that's the most classic story of a jerk to nice guy. So in that sense, it's not a coincidence that Bill Murray went from playing the uh, jerk to nice guy in Scrooge to just five years later playing the uh, jerk to nice guy in, uh, in Groundhog Day. Groundhog Day, of course, is considered one of the uh, top uh, film comedies uh, of all time. It's 
Uh, it actually holds up to uh, rewatchings. And there is a there is a book. Uh, I should have put the title here. Uh, just a minute. There is a book called Groundhog Day by uh, Ryan Gilby um, from the British Film Institute uh, that has a lot of insights and thought-provoking ideas about uh, about the uh, the movie. The uh, since we are uh, running out of time, just mention a couple of things. Uh, right. One, uh, right. So what happens after Phil gets caught in this loop? Okay. He's panicking. He, uh, he tries to escape, and then he tries to kill himself. He tries to manipulate people. Um, he's invincible, but he's confused. So he comes at the same time. So he comes to ask questions uh, Questions like uh, like this one. One second. Op optimize for motion and video. Not that one. That one. Uh, where'd my video go? Here we go. Okay. Make sure it starts at the right right moment. There we go. What would you do if you were stuck in one place and every day was exactly the same and nothing that you did mattered? Now that sums it up for me. That's the end of that uh, that uh, classic um, classic back and forth in the uh, in the movie. I have it here on, on source source number twelve. I like the way it's formulated on this website uh, called Transparency Now. Um, the guy who wrote it, Ken, Hain, uh, Ken Sainz, is a, is a journalist. He has a bunch of essays about, about pop culture. And I, I look at the way he formulates it. What's so powerful about Groundhog Day is the way it lets us experience what it would be like to make a breakthrough like this in our own lives. The, he, he is like, Phil Connors is like the worst in ourselves. Like us, he finds himself in an inexplicable situation, seemingly a plaything of fate. But unlike us, he gets the luxury of being stuck in the same day until he gets it right. As we'll come back to momentarily, he doesn't think that's a luxury. He thinks it's torture. But whereas most of us go semi-automatically through most of our days, he is forced to stop and treat each day like a world unto itself and decide how to use it. And in the end, he undergoes a breakthrough to a more authentic self in which intimacy, creativity, and compassion come naturally, a self that was trapped inside him that could only be freed by trapping him in this loop. Like many of the heroes of fiction, he, Phil Connors can only escape his exile from himself by being exiled in a situation not of his choosing. And to, to illustrate this point, I want to uh, share a scene, a pivotal scene in, uh, in, in the movie. Here we go. You gotta want it. You gotta want it, Rita. Oh, come on. It's, it's more in the wrist than the finger. It's just gotta. <laughs> he keeps getting the cards in the hat and she keeps missing. <laughs> Be the hat. Come on. Go. Be the hat. It would take me a year to get good at this. No, six months. Four to five hours a day. And you'd be an expert. Is this what you do with eternity? Now you know. Wow, that's what you do with eternity. You can use it to get good at throwing cards in a hat. The worst part is that tomorrow you will have forgotten all about this, and you'll treat me like a jerk again. No. It's all right. I am a jerk. No, you're not. It doesn't make any difference. I've killed myself so many times. I don't even exist anymore. Well, sometimes I wish I had a thousand lifetimes. I don't know, Phil. Maybe it's not a curse. It just depends on how you look at it. Gosh, you're an upbeat lady. <laughs> okay, now I'm skipping ahead a tiny bit. She falls asleep. I don't know what to say. I, was. I think you're the kindest, sweetest, prettiest person I've ever met in my life. 
I've never seen anyone that's nicer to people than you are. The first time I saw you, something happened to me. That's the end of that scene, and that is a turning point in the movie Groundhog Day. As is what we just saw, that's di- I recorded this dialogue, uh, I transcribed it here in source number 14. It's a turning point, as pointed out by Michael Wex, a Canadian novelist, playwright, and author of, of a bunch of books. He has two books about Yiddish. They're called Just Say New and Born to Kvetch. But he has another book about Ben Adam called How to Be a Mensch and Not a Schmuck. And in this book, How to Be a Mensch, he has a whole chapter, or a big chunk of a chapter, about Hillel's rule, don't do to other people what you don't want done to you, and he contrasts it with, he contrasts it with this movie. And he says the turning point occurs when Phil realizes that even though he can't get out of February 2nd, he can change things in such a way that he might have a chance of getting Rita to love him. All that needs to be changed is Phil, is himself. He sets about doing so. And then, and then the next several scenes are him doing chesed, doing nice things to people with the knowledge that he already knows what's going to happen Who's going to get a flat tire at what time? Who's going to choke on food at what time? Which kid is going to fall out of a tree at what time? And he makes sure that he's in those places at that time so that he can save them. And um, the the scene, I'm not going to show it now, but the the kid falls out of a tree. Uh, uh, Phil is looking at his watch. Uh Uh-oh, he's late. He runs. He catches the kid. The kid brushes himself off and runs away as uh, Phil says, What do you say? What do you say? You did not say thank you. You you have never thanked me, meaning he does it over and over again. And so Michael Wex points out, there's nothing that anybody in this town can do for Phil, unlike in normal cases where you help people and you expect that sooner or later they'll help you, but not in this case. He isn't helping them because that's how he would want them to treat him. They're not going to be able to because they're not going to they, – they don't progress to the next day without him. He's helping them because helping them is the right thing to do. And the path from Hill to Phil Connors bears out what Michael Wex thinks is one of the deepest observations in the Gemara, famous Gemara right here on the top of the, of the page. You should always uh, uh, occupy yourself in Torah and mitzvot, even shalolishma, even not for the right reason. Out of doing good things for the wrong reason, hopefully, you will, they explain it, getting in, in the habit, whatever, becoming that kind of person, eventually you'll end up doing it for the right reason. So do, by all means, do the right thing for the wrong reason, but that's what it takes. You have to keep doing the right thing. Eventually you'll become the kind of person who does the right thing. Even if you started doing it for the wrong reason. And Michael Wex goes on to say, that. that's what happens with Phil. Okay, he's not studying Torah, but good deeds. Um, eventually, so maybe originally he's relieving the tedium of always waking up to the same day, but eventually his ulterior motives recede and then vanish altogether. And at the end of the movie, he's left with the skills that he had to teach himself in order to look like the kind of man that Rita would want. Just one quick example. Um, in that day after, after that, that scene in which he says, you know, I, uh, I wish I could be the kind of person who, uh, who deserved you, he goes to take a piano lesson. And 
and he's really bad at it. But then he goes back and he does it again and again and again. And by the time of the end of the movie, he's playing piano really well. That means he wasn't doing that for a week or even a year. The question is, how long was Phil Connors in that loop for? The uh, author, the, the, the screenwriters um, said, uh, out, well, this is, uh, who was this? Uh, right, Danny Rubin, who wrote the, uh, the origin, original script. Um, he said, it is not like a sitcom where the problem is solved after 22 and a half minutes. It had to be, I don't know, 100 years, a lifetime. So even though that's not shown directly in the movie, the idea is that if you keep doing good things over and over again, you will become the person who does that kind of thing. Maybe it takes 10,000 hours. Maybe it takes a huge amount of time. And maybe most of us don't have that kind of time, but that's the direction to go in. Do the right thing even for the wrong reason, and eventually you'll become the kind of person who does, those, who does good things, period. And Mike Weiss concludes, nothing would have changed. Oh, I'm sorry. Great line here. Instead of messing with people because he can and, and looking for opportunities to get away with things, Stone begins to seek out opportunities to give away the things that people around him need, help, consideration, advice, money. Nothing would have changed had Rita not led him to see his predicament, his predicament as an opportunity. In other words, for Michael Wex anyway, the key sentence of the movie is when Rita says, sometimes I wish I had a thousand lifetimes. Maybe it's not a curse. It just depends on how you look at it. If you look at it as an opportunity, then it reframes it in a way that you can actually become become a much, much better uh, person. By the way, even though, uh, even though this is a debate, but Harold Ramis, the, the other uh, author of the script, um, when people asked him about it, uh, he said, uh, I, he imagined that Phil Connors was trapped for 10,000 years. Uh, and Danny Rubin denies this, but that's uh, apparently a, a number, a significant number for, for the Buddhists. I thought it was interesting, because remember we mentioned a bunch of Rambams before? Uh, comparing A Christmas Carol with the Rambam and Hilcho Tshuva, well, you know what? The Rambam, after he famously talks about Tshuva Gemura, the perfect Tshuva or the ultimate Tshuva, that's where you're in the exact same situation where you sinned before and you choose not to sin, not because there's any pressure, but just because you are, you, that's your choice. That's perfect Tshuva. That's the famous quote. But the Rambam then goes on to say, what if somebody only did Tshuva when they're elderly? And they couldn't actually sin in a way that they could have, that they did before. This is not the best type of tshuva. Nevertheless, the Ramam says, It's good enough. This person is considered to have done tshuva. So even though you could say, oh, you can't compare um, uh, somebody who really does tshuva. The people of Ninveh, uh, they only did tshuva because Yonah scared them. And the uh, uh, Scrooge and A Christmas Carol and all the many adaptations, they only do tshuva because the, the, the partner, uh, the dead partner, uh, and uh, the three, the ghost of Christmas past, and the ghost of Christmas present, the ghost of Christmas future, they scare him. So that doesn't really count. And the Phil Connors only does tshuva because he's tried everything else and he can't get out of it anyway, so he might as well try something different and see, see what happens. Guess what? It all counts as tshuva. So even though Phil Connors and, and Scrooge, they're not in the same category as Darth Vader, they are in the sense that the message is even, the message with Darth Vader is even the most evil pre people can do tshuva, but the message with all of them is that even bidyeved tshuva, even not so ideal tshuva, that still counts and Hashem will still accept it which is not so obvious, but it is an idea that appears here in the Rambam, and it can be illustrated by all the examples in uh, pop culture that, that, we just, uh, that we just saw. We'll just end with this uh, quote, and I'll, then I'll uh, uh, take questions and look at the chat from the uh, uh, Professor uh, uh, Doughton, or Doughton. I just saw a few minutes ago that she, uh, 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 she passed away uh, just, uh, just this year. Uh, she taught for 28 years at Southern Illinois University. Uh, so she points out, she's comparing is it, uh, Groundhog Day to earlier films, It's a Wonderful Life and A Christmas Carol. Uh, it's similar in the sense how events might otherwise transpire. Okay, what if, you know, what if 
uh, it's a wonderful life. What if you could see what would happen if you never lived? What Christmas Carol? What if people, you could be shown what will happen to you in the future if you don't change your ways? Uh, Groundhog Day. What if you got stuck in a loop? But she points out it's no accident that the modernist, meaning not current, but but a couple of generations ago, it's a wonderful life and Christmas Carol used divine intervention in the form of spirits and angels as an explicit plot device. Okay. Um, Angels explicitly in a wonderful life, but a Christmas Carol, uh, ghosts who are apparently, you know, doing the, uh, the bidding of a higher power. And you know what? You don't see that in Groundhog Day. Groundhog Day is more secular. It's a self-consciously postmodern era, so Connors has to listen to the spirit inside him, but it ends up being the same thing. If somebody comes to Chuva because of heavenly messengers or because of inner prompting, the main thing is that he does Chuva. That's more important than, uh, than what, what prompted it. I thought that was an interesting point. Anyway, thank you for, uh, for joining me. I'm going to uh, end the uh, recording now, and then I will stay and uh, uh, read the chat and uh, open up for, for questions. Uh, and uh, thank you for, uh, for joining me, and uh, hope, hope to uh, see everybody again uh, next week. So 